a reading from Psalm chapter 39. I said, I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I will put a muzzle on my mouth while in the presence of the wicked. So I remained utterly silent, not even saying anything good. But my anguish increased. My heart grew hot within me. While I meditated, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Save me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. I was silent. I would not open my mouth. For you are the one who has done this. Remove your scourge from me. I am overcome by the blow of your hand. When you rebuke and discipline anyone for their sin, you consume their wealth like a moth. Surely everyone is but a breath. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner, a stranger, as all my ancestors were. Look away from me that I might enjoy life again before I depart and am no more. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, when you go to seminary and you take a preaching class, one of the things they will tell you is never, ever start a sermon with an apology. I want to start this morning with an apology. Um, if this is your first time at Waterstone, I want you to know that this is not what we normally do. It's different this morning. So I apologize, you'll have to come back next week to figure us out a bit. Um, see, I believe that preachers are given two responsibilities. At times, we are to take the scriptures and explain them and relate them to life. That's one responsibility. The other responsibility is at times we are to take life and try to explain life in light of the scriptures. This morning, I want to do the second of those. And I want to do it in, uh, if you'll indulge me, in a bit of a personal way. I want to uh, share with you uh, about the last seven months uh, as I was on sabbatical, and hopefully some of the things that I've learned, or at least have reflected on and, and wrestled with. Um, you should know that I think um, <laughs> that having a sabbatical is an amazing privilege, kind of unbelievable. Uh, I know Larry has said one of the best paragraphs he's ever read in the world was the paragraph in our personnel handbook that talks about the fact that pastors every seven years get three months for a sabbatical. I happen to agree with him. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> Who gets to do that? Um, but sabbaticals have an intention there to give rest and rejuvenation, there to be a time for study and learning, and hopefully there to provide some space 
to be creative or to work on something that you don't typically have the opportunity to do in the midst and busyness of ministry. That's a sabbatical. So the first thing I want to say to you is thank you. Thanks for the privilege of investing in your pastors and caring about us that way. The second thing I want to tell you is my sabbatical did not really work out the way I hoped or I expected. Um, I had great plans. I was going to rest and I was going to fish. I was going to uh, take care of a bunch of projects around the house that I haven't gotten to in the last 10 years. And then the biggest thing I wanted to do was really work on a uh, workbook on preaching, a self-guided workbook on uh, helping preachers learn to preach in an expositional way that could be used overseas in Guinea. I traveled there a couple years ago and saw a real need for that. Uh, not much of that happened. Um, back in November of 2016, my wife had a hip replacement. Uh, my wife, to be honest, has bad bones. She has had 17 surgeries in 11 years, most of them orthopedic. Uh, hips, three surgeries on her back, two on her shoulder, feet. It's just, she has bad bones. Um, we thought maybe this was nearing the end of those surgeries. I mean, I don't know that there's many other joints that could be replaced in her body. So um, we went in to this surgery pretty hopeful. She had the surgery in November. The problem was you're supposed to heal pretty quickly from a hip surgery. It's no longer that big a deal. And she didn't. Um, just never felt right, and it hurt. Um, she'd go back in for a follow-up visit, and they'd take an x-ray and say, you know, it looks fine, everything moves okay. Don't know why it's hurting. Uh, the pain got worse and worse. Um, about five months later, it was really bad. And as we went to the doctor and still everything seemed okay, uh, they said, you know, we think that you have chronic pain syndrome. And that's this syndrome where your brain and your nerves aren't reacting appropriate to the stimuli in your body and things hurt when they shouldn't hurt. And they said the solution to that was to do more physical therapy. So. We did more physical therapy, even though it was incredibly painful. And things got worse to the point where she couldn't walk, and we bought a wheelchair and, uh, um, so she could get around and still work uh, um, and do things. But she was losing the ability to be mobile. She finally went into the doctor, and she was trying to get a, a new prescription. And he said, you know, I, we've done this before, but I want to do another blood test. And they did, and one of the markers in the blood test for inflammation came back high, and he said, I doubt that this is going on, but I want to get your hip aspirated because this could be a marker for infection. So in uh, uh, the end of May, they sent her back in to get an X-ray and aspirate her hip, and when they took the X-ray, they uh, discovered something was really, really wrong. Um, in fact, her doctor who had done the hip surgery within an hour called back and said, um, you have a, an infection. It's been a slow-growing infection in your hip, and that's why we were never able to see it. 
but at this point it has eaten away the bone of your pelvis and the cup that they put in for the artificial hip has broken through your pelvic wall and uh, you, you should be in an emergency room. That's how painful this is. When I see it, that's where people usually are calling from. So what they have to do when you have an infected hip is they have to go in and take the hip out and they put a temporary uh, uh, hip in a spacer and they put antibiotics in that. And then you have to go on intravenous antibiotics for uh, a couple months to kill the infection. Before they can do that, they have to figure out what the infection is, so you have to wait a bit. And Barb finally had surgery, and all that was done, and it seemed it was successful. There had been a lot of bone loss, but this surgeon, um, actually, he was retiring. It was the last surgery he did, <laughs> um, said, I, I think you'll be okay. I'll be able to replace your hip, and you'll be fine. So we went home, and she started feeling a bit better, and then things took a turn to the worse, and we didn't really know why. She started having strange tingling in her skin. She started having stomach cramps. Uh, um, her taste was off. Um, first, we didn't think much of it, but over a couple of days, it got really, really, really intense. And we went back to the surgeon. He took us to the, sent us to the emergency room, and they said, well, we don't know what's going on. I mean, you may be reacting to the antibiotic, but this isn't what you should how you should react. Uh, there were symptoms uh, when you react to vancomycin antibiotic, you get a, a red rash. She didn't have any of that. So she said, we don't think it's the antibiotic, but she was in incredible pain. So they pumped her up on drugs and eventually sent her home. We ended, over the course of the next two weeks, we ended up in the emergency room three times, and they finally decided, well, we don't know how or why. This is very unusual, but it's the antibiotic. It's the best guess we have. So they tried a second antibiotic, and she reacted to that. So they tried a couple other things. She finally ended up on, a, on oral antibiotics. It's not as effective for this, the, the bacteria that was in her hip, but that was the only alternative. And they sent her home, and she got a little bit better, but not really. Um, she still had intense stomach pains. She was beginning to lose the ability to produce saliva. She didn't have tears, no sweat, um, and her skin, that was, she had global neuropathy, which is when your skin hurts all over um, and, and not in a consistent way, but very painful. She has described it this way. She says, at times my skin feels like somebody has peeled the skin off and taken a razor blade and is scraping it. So this wasn't just tingling or numbness. This was really in pain. She was so bad that over the course of five or six weeks, she lost 25 pounds because she couldn't eat and keep anything down. Um, the doctors didn't know what to do. Finally, my daughter, my daughter Sarah, is a doctor. She's an OBGYN resident back in New York, and she was out, and she finally decided something had to be done. We didn't really have a doctor overseeing her case because the guy who did the surgery to take the hip out was different than the first guy who put it in, and that guy who did that had retired. So my daughter wrote a letter to her pain doctor and primary care doctor and the original hip and basically said, you know, this was my daughter's guess. I think she has opioid-induced hyperalgesia, which is when you've taken so much pain medicine, it begins to have the opposite effect. It causes more pain. And finally, one of the doctors said, well, we'll take her in. So they, they admitted her to the hospital. 
and they couldn't explain what was happening, so they finally decided, you know, she's just an addict. She's had too many uh, pain meds over the course of all these surgeries, so we'll detox her. Uh, um, that's the problem. So they took her cold turkey off all the opioids and detoxed her for a week, which was, was no fun, um, and then sent her home. And when you get detoxed after 10 to 14 days, the symptoms are to subside. That's the expectation. The problem was when we got home, the symptoms didn't subside. And I began thinking, I don't think this has anything. You know, the interesting thing is she had taken opioids for different surgeries, but she had never abused them, never used more than the prescription, never took them when she wasn't in pain. It just, some of it just didn't make sense to me. Um, but after 14 days, she was still the same. And after 21 days, she was still the same. And nothing had really gotten all that much better. <coughs> Finally, we had finished the course of antibiotics, and she stopped taking, at this point it was, I think it's called Zyvox. And when she stopped that, she began to get a little bit better. Um, we knew the next step in this whole journey was to, to get her hip reconstructed, uh, revision. And... Um, through some mishaps with Kaiser. We had one doctor that we were pretty comfortable with got switched to another. We went and met with him, and I asked him. He didn't seem to know exactly what he was going to do. Well, we might use this, and we might do that. And, and I said, how many of these have you done? And he says, oh, I do about one every two years. And I thought, really? <sighs> that was not comforting. And we decided to get a second opinion. We went to another doctor, and he said, you know, this is really bad. You have a lot of bone loss. I'm not sure you will walk again. I'm not sure that they can do a revision. Uh, you may end up with uh, 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 no hip joint. And that was hard to hear. So we thought we need to explore some other options of uh, people who do this. Uh, my daughter was on a rotation uh, outside her normal hospital at, a, at Cornell Hospital Complex. And they have a, a, it's HSS, it's Hospital for Special Surgery there, and it's the top orthopedic surgery center in the United States for orthopedics. And there's a doctor there that specializes in the reconstruction of hips that have been infected. So Sarah said, you know, I'll go over and see if he'll talk to me. And he t took all Barb's MRIs and x-rays and he talked to her and he sat down and evaluated her case and he came back and he said number one you cancel the surgery number two you need to find somebody who does this routinely this is a very complicated surgery if you don't cancel it and you let this other guy do it it will fail and your your mom will not walk so two days before the surgery was to take place we went ahead and canceled the problem is we didn't know what alternatives we had. We asked Kaiser for a referral to outside, somebody who does this all the time, and that got denied. And we put in an appeal, and that got denied. <laughs> and we thought, uh, we started thinking, well, we'll just have to pay for this on our own, because I'm not going to let somebody who does this occasionally make my guinea pig a wife, my wife a guinea pig. Turn those around. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
We found eventually, we, we got some help from some doctors in Kaiser and some friends who worked with Kaiser and tried to navigate that system. And we finally found a doctor. We had found one who used to do this all the time, was in association with Kaiser, but he had left and now they wouldn't refer to him. It was a long struggle. Finally found somebody who could do it, who does it all the time. And Kaiser finally relented and agreed to have the surgery done. So um, November 16th, almost a year after the first surgery, Barb went back in and had her hip reconstructed. And the hip reconstruction, she, the, it was pelvic discontinuity. They had to rebuild the whole hip to hold the sting in with augments and all kinds of stuff. That actually went well. But when I talked to the surgeon afterwards, he said, what I'm concerned about is not the hip. We think that will fuse and heal. But I'm concerned about the muscles that hold the hip in place. They've cut through them so many times for these surgeries, and the bone was so infected that it's deteriorated that there's no muscle left. So you can't rebuild muscle that's not there. So he said the only hope is, is that scar tissue will develop to hold her hip in place. And uh, we went back uh, about a month ago to see him, and he said, well, this is great. Your hip hasn't displaced. <laughs> that's not good <laughs> comment, um, as he expected it to. So, so far, the hip's held in place, uh, um, but it's not like she can rehab. So that's going well. The infection's gone. She's healing. The hip's doing okay. What has not changed is the neuropathy. Um, she still has skin pain. She still has no saliva, no tears, um, no sweat. Some of that has gotten better. We went to see a neurologist, and his conclusion is, is that the antibiotic um, caused fine fiber nerve damage, which is the nerves that you get pain sensory from. And he said it takes a long, long, long time for nerves to heal. We had a pharmacologist do some research for us, and he found two cases of this linked to an antibiotic that she was on. One, it lasted for a few hours, and one that lasted for five months. Uh, for Barb, it has been almost six months now. And we don't know if it's going to get better or not. So she lives with pain all the time. Sometimes it's debilitating. And she's uh, back to work uh, some days, but she still is immobile in the sense that she can't put weight on her leg for another couple of months and is in a wheelchair. So all that is to say my sabbatical uh, was not what I planned. Most my time was spent taking care of her and some of it was spent feeling guilty for not getting everything else done that I was supposed to. Let me give you a little context, and then I'll share some of my reflections that I've had as I've gone through this, just so you can understand. One thing you might want to know is, to some degree, I'm the world's worst caregiver, and Barb is the world's worst patient. I joke about that, but there's some truth to it. Barb is very independent and I make a terrible nurse. If you're sick, I'm the last person you should call. Uh, um, I'm just not wired to be a nurse. It's just not who I am. But it's what I've tried to do over the last number of months. Second, most of our life um, 
has been pretty grand and very blessed. I, I'm, I, I feel that way. It's, it's been a great life. And we've never assumed that we had a right to praying free life. I think in our culture sometimes there's this, this atmosphere of spiritual entitlement uh, um, where we think we're owed a good life. We think that life is about us and that its goal is happiness and God's on the hook to provide that. And we're not the center of life and happiness is not the goal. The reality is everybody suffers uh, to some degree and the circumstances may differ, but nobody, nobody gets out of life unscathed. I mean, in the end, we all die. So that is life. Um, third, I realize that on the large scale of life, the challenges that we've walked through the last number of months pale in comparison to others. Over the holiday break, I was watching a newscast that there wasn't much news because not much was going on, so they were doing human interest stories. And they did a story on a guy named Paul Alexander. I think we have a picture of him. This is Paul. He's now 71 years old. He got polio when he was a young kid and was paralyzed from the neck down. Um, he has been in an iron lung most of his life. When he was younger, he didn't have to spend his whole day there, and he was able to get a law degree and practice law, but now almost 100% of his time is in the iron lung. There are three people who still have iron lungs and need them to breathe. The problem is they don't make iron lungs anymore, and nobody really produces parts for them. So when it breaks, uh, if it breaks and it doesn't work, he dies. So he's been looking for for someone to help repair and keep his iron lung working. He's looked all over the nation. He finally found a guy who lives 10 minutes away from him, has a warehouse, and in this warehouse, this guy likes mechanical things. He had two iron lungs. Go figure. Life is strange. Um, that's his whole day. He can type with that stick coming out of his mouth. His caregiver said on the, the news report that if you spent a day with Paul, it would change your life. And I'm sure it would. We don't have it too bad. <laughs> and it's not, um, you know, there's always people who have it better and worse than you do. Uh, um, and other people's situation, though, don't really minimize Years, what you experience is what you experience. Although when you see that, it does give you some perspective, and that's helpful. The other thing, just as context, what was strange about this situation for me is I'm not the one suffering. It's like I'm the observer uh, um, watching my wife, who I care about deeply, suffer. And it, oftentimes, there's nothing I can do. Uh, it can't make her pain less or it can't make it go away. And, and you do feel a bit helpless. So through this journey, there are a number of things that I've been pondering and thinking and thought might be worth sharing with you this morning. Um, just five reflections. The first is this. It's really difficult to exegete your circumstances. Exegete is when you go to a passage of Scripture and you pull out all the nouns and the verbs and how everything's constructed and you're trying to figure out what God is saying. We do that with life. We, we try to interpret what, what, God, what is God saying through my circumstances and these events in my life. And I've discovered that that is a very difficult thing to do. 
I mean, I, I, I've tried to do it. I thought, well, maybe, maybe this is God's discipline. Uh, uh, um, you know, maybe he's uh, trying to correct something in this. But the thought of, when I thought of that, I thought, look, I, I could understand me being disciplined. I don't get my wife being disciplined. And I really don't get why you would give her pain to discipline me. That didn't seem very fair. And I thought, you know, if this is God's discipline, I think he'd make it obvious what it's for. I mean, think about it. Can you think, picture a, a good dad coming up and, and swatting his five-year-old on the rear end, and the little kid says, what was that for? And the dad says, I'm not telling you. You figure it out. No good dad would do that. I, I think God is a good father, so I, I don't I'm sure that works well. I'm not sure that works well. I thought, well, maybe, maybe it's spiritual warfare. And maybe it is, but one of the th things that has puzzled me, why now? Why at this moment? I've been in ministry for 31 years. Why? More than that now, 33. Um, and I'm pretty convinced that uh, a demon is not at the heart of Barb's hip infection. I mean, maybe behind it in a secondary way. But that doesn't make as much sense to me either. Um, maybe, but I don't know for sure. Maybe it, it was just God putting me on the shelf. I was going to write this preaching workbook, uh, revamp some curriculum around the, 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 the kingdom. Um, maybe God was just saying, you know, shut up. You really don't have that much to say. Maybe he was just closing the door. Maybe it's just that life at times is brutal and hard. <laughs> I, I, I am finding out that growing old is brutal. Uh, um, we live in a fallen world and uh, hips get infected and surgeries go wrong and artificial hips go bad and that's just life. It happens because life is nasty, hard, brutish, and always too short. You know, I think as I've reflected on that, some, maybe some of you are trying to exegete your life circumstances. I think it's the natural thing to do when life is hard. But I've come to the conclusion it's dangerous and you have to be careful. Uh, um, I, I mean, in my own situation, it, it gets so complex because you start to look at what has happened and there's this strange mix of good and bad. I mean, there's bad, the hip got infected, that low chance of that. Uh, not finding the infection, usually they can find it. Not finding it until it had eaten through her hip, that's bad. Uh, um, reacting to the antibiotic, that's weird and incredibly unusual. Switching doctors in the middle, that's bad. I, I mean, there's lots of bad, but you know, on the flip side, there, there were some really amazingly good things. I mean, the way Waterstone responded, and you have responded, Barb and I have never felt alone or without support, and people have taken great care of us, and the church extended my sabbatical so I could take care of her. My daughter happening to be at Cornell to be able to go to HSS to talk with this surgeon really changed the course of who did the surgery for my wife, being able to find a doctor who does this all the time. I mean, those things are all good. So which, which ones do you give more 
weight to. Exegeting life is complicated. And oftentimes when you think you have it all figured out, guess what? You're wrong. I was thinking of that story in John chapter 9 where a blind man who was blind from birth gets his vision. And the disciples go to Jesus and say, okay, was he blind because his parents sinned or because he sinned? I mean, they had this all figured out. They had life kind of exegeted. And Jesus says, neither. (laughs) You guys don't have a clue. This was simply for God's glory. We don't always know what God is doing in the circumstances of our lives. The second reflection I've had is this, that uh, asking the question why is not very helpful. But the question what is? I think when life gets hard and challenging, the natural question is why? Um, And I've come to the conclusion that most of the time when life is hard and we incur challenging times or suffering, there is no discernible reason. That doesn't mean that life is without purpose. It just means that much of the hardness of life doesn't happen for a specific reason or cause. Because I think from God's perspective, the issue isn't our understanding. The issue is our trust. When you think about why we want to know why, it's because if we can have a rational explanation for what is going on in our lives, then we think, ah, I'm in control. And when there's no rational explanation for what is going on, the only thing you're left with is the decision whether you're going to trust God in the midst of it or not. And it's fascinating to me that in the book of Job, that's exactly what the book is about. Job wants to know why, and his friends, boy, they have life exegeted. And God is saying, they're so far off the mark. It's silly. And then Job comes back, okay, then why? And God says, you couldn't understand it if I told you. Can you explain the hippopotamus? Can you understand the wind and rain cycles? Can you, I mean, these are simple things. (laughs) Can you understand how a bird... You can't understand that. You're not going to understand what I'm about. So the issue is, will you trust me? Will we trust him without explanation? So I discovered that why isn't the helpful question, but, but I think what is, and that question is, what am I supposed to be learning, and what is God teaching me? Two things have come to my mind. One, I've discovered, this isn't incredibly profound, but I like to be in control. (laughs) If you ask me if I worry much in my life, I would tell you, nah. But that has changed for me. I worry more now than I ever did in the past. And what I worry about most is my kids. And I've tried to think, why would I worry about them now? They're all out of the house. They're all adults. They're all making their own decisions. And in actuality, they're all doing fine. Why worry about them? And I I, I think I know why. When they were younger, even though life was in some ways more precarious, they were in my house, and I had this illusion of control. Now that illusion is totally gone. They make their own decisions. They don't listen to me much. I have very little influence. And I like to be in control, so that doesn't feel very good. 
The second thing of the what I've learned is that for me, accomplishment is a bit of an idol. I got to be honest with you, taking care of Barb on my sabbatical is not what I wanted to do, but it's what I had to do. I mean, I had big plans. <laughs> I was going to go fishing a whole bunch. I was going to get this work done. I was going to do things that gave me a sense of significance and fulfillment. And instead, I was playing nursemaid. And that was frustrating. I was talking to an old friend of mine about Barb's situation, and she was sharing with me, uh, Dan and Sherry Everett, uh, Everett story. I used to run the camp up at Woodbine. Um, and Sherry is disabled because of her back. Uh, she can't lift herself. She can't dress herself. Uh, uh, she has trouble moving. She's in constant pain. And she requires 24-hour care. And Dan is the one who takes care of her. My friend asked Dan, how do you do this? And I thought he had a profound insight. He said, you know, I've come to the conclusion that at this moment in my life, this is my calling. This is what God has called me to, and thus this is what has meaning for me. And this is what gives me fulfillment. You know, I'm tempted to measure my calling by what I accomplish and what I get done. And I think that is my calling. And right now, I think God has said, not now. Third reflection. Uh, I think God interacts with us and life perhaps differently than we think. Come to the conclusion that there is far more freedom and chaos uh, than we might like in a fallen world. One of the quotes I've come across is by a man named Richard Rohr. Um, and he says that God is the great allower. I know that's bad grammar. He's making a noun out of a verb. But I think he's right. I think God allows far more than we are comfortable with. And I've come to the conclusion that uh, I don't think everything that happens in life happens for a reason. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying I don't believe in God's providence, that he's active in life, working his purpose. And I'm not saying that God is not sovereign because I think he is in control. I just don't think he's wired every circumstance in life for a reason or a cause. Sometimes I think life just happens because life happens. Uh, we're in the wrong place at the wrong time. We're connected to the wrong people and, and they hurt us or we make bad choices. Or, or, or sometimes we're simply the victims uh, 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 of life and life's brokenness. Sometimes bacteria gets into an artificial hip. And God allows evil and bad decisions and lousy doctrine and tainted morals. And there's not a reason. But to say there's not a reason doesn't mean there's not a purpose. Reason has to do with cause. Purpose has to do with result. And I do believe that God uses everything to his end. I like this analogy that life is like a chess game. We're playing God and God is the grand master and he knows that in the end he's going to win and he knows exactly how that will take place. But on the other hand, 
He gives us freedom. We can move our ponds and our rooks and our knights any way we want. But in the end, he's going to win. What I've begun to realize, though, it's not just me and God playing chess. That This is a strange chess game because it's multiplayer. There are other people who are freely moving their pieces, sometimes with good choices, sometimes with bad choices, sometimes with choices that hurt me and the people I love. And not only is it a multiplayer game, but one of those players is the world itself, its chaos and its brokenness. And even though the world is playing and people are playing and I'm playing and we're all free and chaotic and sometimes uncharted in where we go, God knows exactly what's going on and in the end is going to achieve his purpose and his result. Greg Boyd talks about the notion of divine Aikido. Aikido is a martial arts uh, discipline where they teach you to use the moves of your opponent to achieve your victory. And I think that's what God does. No matter what our choices, what our decisions, good or bad, he is so sovereign and so providential that he works it ultimately for his purposes. Even our pain and suffering. And I think another quote I came across helps me understand that sometimes our expectations of God are off. I was talking to a really good friend of mine who I've known for over 30 years. She gave me a quote. And at first, I totally disagreed with the quote. But the more I've thought about it, I think there's more truth there than I might like to admit. The quote is this. God's love protects us from nothing, but sustains us in all things. I know that the notion that God does not protect us does not fit well with our sentimentalized, suburbanized, individualized, Jesus is my best friend theology. But I think it may be truer than we like. The truth is, Christians die at the same rate as unbelievers. They get cancer at the same rate. They are raped just as often. They have the same number of accidents, suffer from the same calamities and natural disasters as those who do not know God. And the reality is God does not typically protect us from the fallenness or the chaos of life. We, we don't get a pass. Now there are exceptions when God intervenes. But I'm not convinced that he intervenes all that often. And I am convinced that at those times where he does, he does it for a larger kingdom agenda. The difference for us is not that we are exempt from the hardness of life or its brutality. The difference for us is that in the midst of that, God is with us. God does not say we get to skip the dark valleys of life. What he promises is that when we're in the dark valleys, he is there. And that's the difference. 
fourth reflection I realize is that um, I have a hidden atheist inside me. <laughs> and he often comes out when I feel out of control and things are dark. And it's at that moment that I am tempted to leave God out of the picture. And what I've discovered is that when I choose to leave God out of the picture, that fundamentally changes everything. My perspective, my attitude, everything. When he's in the picture, obviously it's better. Even though at times it's difficult to detect his presence. I, I think the reality is, is that we often are practical atheists. Uh, a practical atheist is someone who, despite what they say, acts if God does not exist. And you can see it in our hearts. You can see it in our lack of prayer. You can see it in our lack of trust. You can see it in our lack of hope. You can see it in our lack of faith. You can see it in the, our lack of risk-taking and our despair. <laughs> I don't think I'm alone. I think not only do I have a hidden atheist, I think most of you do too. Final thought. I think we have to find hope in the day. I was listening to a series of podcasts by Tim Mackey and uh, John. Uh, um, they are the ones who are behind the Bible Project. And not only do they make videos, but they have conversations. And they had a series of seven hours of conversation around this concept of the day of the Lord. One of the interesting things about the day of the Lord is you find that it's this recurring theme throughout the scriptures. And it provided hope. Early on, it's just uh, referred to as the day. Then you get to Amos, and he talks about the day of the Lord. But the day or the day of the Lord is that moment in time when God intervenes and intervenes to bring judgment and justice and to make things the way they are supposed to be. We spent a number of weeks preaching through the book of Revelation. And hopefully, at least one of the things I got from it was that that's what it's all about. The day of the Lord, someday God is going to intervene. He's going to bring judgment and justice. And he's going to make all things as they should be. And on that day, there'll be no more pain and no more suffering. No more sickness. No more abuse. No more hurt. No more death. And that changes everything. Ran across a quote from Timothy Keller. Timothy Keller is a pastor at Redeemer Church, or was a pastor at Redeemer Church in New York. He's written a lot, and is just a brilliant man. You may not know that Keller um, got thyroid cancer and had to have his thyroid removed and then face this treatment with radioactive iodine to destroy any of the residual cancer cells. He, he wrote this 
uh, um, and he's talking about the day he went into surgery. He said this, he said, on the morning of my surgery, after I said my goodbyes to my wife and sons, I was wheeled into a room to be prepped. To my surprise, I got a sudden, clear, new perspective on everything. It seemed to me that the universe was an enormous realm of joy, mirth, and high beauty. Of course it was. Didn't the triune God make it to be filled with his own boundless joy, wisdom, love, and delight? And within this great globe of glory was only one little speck of darkness, our world, where there was temporary pain and suffering. But it was only one speck, and soon that speck would fade away and everything would be light. And I thought, does it really matter how the surgery goes? Everything will be all right. Me, my wife, my children, my church will be all right. I went to sleep with a bright peace on my heart.